Hi, I'm Michelle Ward. As a mom, I've looked my children in the eyes with love and hoped I can lead them toward a bright, wonderful future. But as a neurocriminologist who's been studying violent crime for the last 20 years, I've also quietly hoped that at the very least, I'm not raising a future serial killer. And if you can relate to that taboo thought, congratulations, you've just found your new favorite podcast. This is How Not to Raise a Serial Killer. Hi, Jessica. Hi. Thank you very much for agreeing to um, come on the show. Now, Jessica is not a mom herself, but she has a bunch of nieces, right? Nephew. Nephew. Mm -hmm. Just one. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Sorry. I got that wrong. Sometimes I get it wrong. (laughs) You guys should really trust everything I say. And I know you're very close to your sister. So Mm -hmm. we've had aunts on here before because I feel like sometimes... You can see the child for more of who the child is rather than us parents who tie all of our identity up in the child. Yeah, it's fun to see how he is um, sort of keeping pace too with all of my friends who have boys of his same age. Today, we're going to talk about a crime and cause and what could have been done. And I'm going to hope very much that this does not strike a chord in in your memory of your nephew. And it's a a rare condition, but we're going to elucidate it because I think it's important. We're going to be talking about a man named Daryl Madison. He was born in Monroe, Louisiana in 1958, but he mainly grew up in Texas. His mom was a hardworking nurse and was gone a lot of the time because of her long hours. Daryl didn't have a great relationship with his father, and he describes it as simply not getting along with him. But what he remembers and retells sounds a lot more like abuse. He reports that his father would beat him with large wooden boards and on occasion with extension cords. And because of this, according to Daryl, he would run away often. It's hard to tell from his stories, but I got the impression that people didn't really come looking for him when he would disappear. When he was still quite young, Daryl began starting fires. He would start fires in his neighborhood and watch them burn with great pleasure. And according to Daryl, this was an obsession that grew to the point of sexually arousing him. He would start a fire and masturbate while it burned. And when he was finished, he would simply walk away from the burning structure. He said he burned many homes and buildings right in his own neighborhood, and he gave no indication that anyone ever suspected him. Had he been suspected or caught, we might be telling a very different story today. It seems that Daryl was able to act on just about any impulse without detection. Daryl describes himself as the black sheep in his family, and according to him, he was the only one with a criminal background. And while Daryl's crimes were going undetected, so were some other troubling things. Daryl was starting to experience out-of-body moments, times when he literally had no memory of what had just happened. And this went unnoticed, too. There's only one moment I can find when someone noticed what was going on with Daryl. He was in his class, and he was talking to himself in a peculiar way. And a teacher did stop him, and she asked what was going on. 
didn't respond at first, but when Daryl did eventually look up and respond to her, he had no clue, no idea what she was talking about. He had no memory of the event at all. As innocuous as that was, I wouldn't necessarily expect anyone to do anything about it. But there were other very glaring red flags that everyone seemed to ignore. Situations in which this young boy could have been noticed, evaluated, and treated. The most egregious of these times involved yet another fire. But this time it was different. Daryl's family had left the house, and Daryl decided to set his own house on fire. You would think that this would be the ultimate cry for help, but he had burned down so many buildings and homes in this town without being noticed, I'm not even sure this fire would implicate Daryl. But you know what he did? He lit the home ablaze and he went back in. He lay down in his bed and he watched the house burn around him. The firefighters rescued him, and when he was asked what happened, Daryl simply had no memory of the event at all. He said it was like someone else was living in his body, and that he had always felt there was someone else inside him besides him. By the time Daryl was 12, he was partying. He was drinking and smoking pot. And as a teenager, he was robbing stores in Houston, Texas. In 1977, at the age of 19, he was finally arrested. I think that might have been the first time. And he was sent to prison for his robberies, never the arson. He spent five to six years in jail. And when he got out, he ended up getting a decent job at an apartment complex. But it was at this point he started to smoke crack. And that's never a good thing. And then his burglaries ramped up big time. He found, like many do, that he needed a lot of money to buy his crack. It was 1988, and he was living in the Fifth Ward in Houston. It was a very rough area, and there was a lot of crime. And it's here where he committed his most heinous crime. But his experience of it does not match what really happened. It was April 2nd, 1988, and he was walking in his neighborhood when he joined one of his neighbors on her porch. This was a neighbor he liked very much, a kind 81-year-old woman named Beulah Jolivet. She lived alone and was sort of the grandma to the street, and it seemed that nobody really messed with her, even though most of her neighbors were drug dealers and criminals. And on this day, Daryl says he had plenty of money in his pocket. He estimated about $1,800 and more than enough crack on him. So according to Daryl, he needed nothing from anybody that day, and he liked Beulah. She'd often offered him small jobs, such as working in her yard, and he was happy to sit with her and just talk to her for a moment. So he spent quite a bit of time with her on her porch, and when she decided to retreat back into her home, he followed. And this is where everything goes sideways and then dark. According to Daryl, he has no explanation for this, but he pushed Beulah to the floor. He began beating her. And while she is screaming, he goes to the kitchen, retrieves a knife, and Daryl remembers stabbing Beulah to death. Then, he says, he simply left the house. I think the next memory is sitting on a stoop somewhere, realizing he had just killed somebody, which he had never done before. 
He cannot, for the life of him, explain why he did it. And all of his other crimes, they'd served a purpose. He needed money, or drugs, or both. But he swears this was not the case on this particular day. Daryl is not denying what happened, but he doesn't really understand it. And here's the thing. Yes, criminals routinely lie about the nature of their crimes, but usually it is to alleviate culpability or dodge a punishment. Not in this case. Daryl completely owns the fact that he brutally killed this woman, and he's happy to stay in jail for it. But the facts of this case are not as he remembers, so much so that it feels to him that there must have been some other person there committing these crimes with him, but there wasn't. The way Daryl remembers the crime is wildly different from the crime scene, and there's no real reason for him to lie because the way Daryl describes it actually makes him sound worse, more vile, with more disregard for human life. In actuality, he robbed Beulah and he ransacked her house. He dragged her around and he ultimately strangled her. He even knocked out her teeth. And while that sounds bad, according to detectives, this was all part of a robbery. He entered and exited her house many times, selling her items to the various drug dealers on her street. It appeared that the killing had a purpose, to fuel his drug habit not just for the sake of killing, as he describes it. In the terms of types of killings, the outcome is the same. But in terms of the type of killer, it is far worse a killer who kills for the fun of it, rather than a need to find supply for an addiction. I'm not saying I would invite either of them over for the holidays, but the one who enjoys the kill? Well, that's the most dangerous person on the planet. I just don't see a clear motivation for him to lie, for him to make himself a worse type of offender. And so I began to wonder, could he be telling the truth? Was he really not mentally present for the parts of the killings for which he has no memory? When confronted with the way the crime actually unfolded, Daryl readily admits that he could behave that way. He has that in him. But that's not what happened that day to Beulah. It's not how he remembers killing her. He really has no memory of what happened after the initial stabbing. And like I said, he believes that he left for good after that. But in the face of all the evidence, he eventually does admit that he must have sold all of those things for drugs. He just can't understand why. He genuinely seems to have not been there for that part. Daryl was caught quickly. Everybody knew who he was, and he was convicted of capital murder. And in Texas, anyone who was convicted of capital murder is eligible for the death sentence. And Daryl was sentenced to death. But during his trial, he was diagnosed with dissociative identity disorder, which I will explain at length later, but simply put, is the presence of two or more distinct personalities. Um, They're also called alters. It was said that one of his personalities is highly unsocialized and the other personality is completely unaware of what the other one is doing. He's very disconnected from himself and he cannot understand the connection between how he feels and what he does. He's fragmented from parts of himself and you can see it when you watch him in these interviews. He says he's always known this, but he didn't know that it wasn't the same for everyone else. He thought we all experienced this. He calls his other personality Bubba, And to this day, Daryl is completely perplexed 
by why he killed Beulah. As I said in these jail interviews, you can see the disconnected and disjointed thinking that Daryl experiences. In addition to having no memory of what happens when he disassociates, he also describes having very little feeling at all. He doesn't know what it is to feel loved. He didn't cry when any of his family members died. He knows it isn't normal. And when I watch it, it doesn't read like a psychopath. It reads more like a dissociative disorder, although the outcome in this case is the same. Interestingly, a woman in Formia, Italy, heard about Daryl's story and took it upon herself to help him to be resentenced. She's the vice president of the Italian coalition to abolish the death penalty. Daryl got a whole set of new lawyers who successfully argued that mitigating factors were not properly argued in his first case. Eventually, he was given the option to have a new trial or accept life imprisonment. In 2009, he was resentenced to life without the possibility of parole. Okay, Jessica, I would love first impressions. What do you think about the story I just read and what do you know about it? This is such a fascinating story. And I watched the documentary, I think multiple times. And I have to say, I did not believe him initially. And part of it, I think, is a lack of understanding about the disorder from which he suffers. Thinking, I think, to alternate titles like multiple personality disorder, which indicates there might be like more than more than one um, that's different than your true self. I just thought it seemed uh, kind of convenient at first that he might, you know, not remember exactly what happened. Now, your point about why would he tell the truth about what he did? And why would he admit to things that were potentially worse and therefore subject him to a more harsh punishment is a really great one. And then also, the more I looked at the ways that he was punished by his father, that he was beaten with boards, did that do damage to his brain where just things were not firing? And so then that was happening at such a young age. And then therefore he did not evolve as all of his brain development was taking place in his, um, you know, in his youth. And so therefore he, uh, essentially had, um, these, these lapses where he just essentially was blank. So I think from a criminal standpoint, like if you, if you think, of course, he's going to say he doesn't remember, and that's really convenient. We've all seen movies where that's depicted rather dramatically, but then Going back to his early childhood, if his brain was damaged at all by any of the abuse he suffered, then that alone could be, and you would know better. I'm curious to know what you think. Like, could that have been maybe reasons why he suffered essentially those those lapses the way that yeah. he did? You're absolutely right. It's a great point. It can be as rudimentary as damaging the organ, the brain in and of itself. And that leading to cognition problems, memory problems, impulsivity, as we've seen, lack of emotional regulation, we that is one way that you can abuse your child and set them on a path toward becoming a criminal. This is a slightly different way in which child abuse can create a different personality that could, not often, but can become criminal. And so I'm glad you brought that up because we can explore exactly why this might have been caused by the a child abuse, as you mentioned, 
but not in the way we typically see it. 60% of criminals in prison, male criminals, um, violent criminals, have head injuries. And a lot of those come from abuse. So you are on the absolute right track. I don't know if he was ever scanned. I don't know if they actually did do any brain studies on him. But I do know that he, you know, the, the, the people, the psychiatrists, the doctors who examined him, they came up with this diagnosis of disassociative identity disorder. So let's jump into that a little bit and we can see if, you know, maybe, maybe it's not one or the other. You know, I don't know if we even have enough information. And another thing that you brought up is multiple personality disorders. And that actually is what people used to call dissociative identity disorder. It's actually the same disorder. It's just been renamed. So what is dissociative identity disorder? And as I said, most of you probably know it as multiple personality disorder. The DSM-5 defines it as the presence of two or more distinct identities or personality states, each with its own pattern of perceiving, thinking, and relating to the environment and the self, where at least two of these identities or personality states recurrently take control of the person's behavior. Dissociative identity disorder is a complex psychological condition, and it presents as a severe form of disassociation. But this is a mental process which produces a lack of connection in the person's thoughts, memories, feelings, actions, and sense of identity. And that's how the alters form. But why? How is it caused? Are you born with it? Turns out probably not. Like you very astutely pointed out, disassociative identity disorder is likely caused by severe trauma during early childhood. It's usually extreme, repetitive, physical, sexual, or emotional abuse. The dissociative aspect is thought to be a coping mechanism, which is so sad when you think about it. The child literally shuts off or disassociates themselves from a situation or experience that's too violent, too traumatic, or just too painful to assimilate with their conscious self. So why do some victims of trauma develop it and others don't? Well, as with most psychological disorders, you can be born with a risk factor for certain conditions and the environment, like trauma, can trigger it. So who's at risk for it? Well, as I said, the research indicates that the cause is likely psychological response to environmental stresses. And so sadly, it's particularly during early childhood. But as you were saying, this person's also probably being beaten in the head. So it's really hard to disentangle how much of this is personality developing in a way that is not typical or healthy because of this severe coping mechanism for the abuse. As many as 99% of the individuals who do develop dissociative identity disorder have a recognized personal history of recurring, overpowering, and often life-threatening traumas at the most sensitive developmental stages of their life, and that's usually before age six. If that doesn't make you mad, I don't know what will. Disassociation may also happen when there's been persistent neglect or emotional abuse, even in the absence of overt physical or sexual abuse. So findings are showing that if your parents are remarkably frightening and unpredictable, the children can also dissociate, become dissociative. And this is not a small number of people. It's indicated that dissociative identity disorder affects about 1% of the population. That's huge. You know 100 people. You probably know 1,000 people. 10 of them have this? I mean, that's remarkable. 
let's stop here and talk about what does this mean legally? Is a person who is in a dissociative state legally responsible for his crime? Are they competent enough to stand trial? The thoughts on this are mixed. Despite the very nature of the disorder being characterized by dissociative amnesia, the fact that the host personality may have limited or no contact at all with the alters, then there's no consensus within the legal community about whether they should be responsible. I mean, what do you think about that, Jessica? The really interesting thing that you're mentioning is the trauma can be physical or not necessarily physical at a very young age. And one of the things that was mentioned in the documentary is not only did he personally suffer physical and emotional abuse and neglect, but all of his, I think he had both brothers and sisters, they were each abused and none of them lived to be very old. And so not only was he personally experiencing violence, but he was witnessing violence on you know, his, his own siblings. So it makes a ton of sense that he would try to escape that to protect himself. And then that made me kind of think about like, and I'm not certainly, you're way more knowledgeable about this than me, but like the different parts of like the brain, like the flight kind mm-hmm. of response to try to self-protect. And you're right. You're describing the autonomic nervous system, the fight or flight or freeze response. And that's very primal in all of us. Um, you know, it's it's how we it's how we saved ourselves from saber tooth whatever is back in the day. It's why we're overly anxious now. You know, we don't we don't have the same fears, but we respond physiologically as if we do. And it's interesting, as you say, that this child's response to the abuse was this not only freezing, but dissociating. And what are the, you know, legal liabilities associated with that? I want to hit on another issue that'll take us into how people look at this and what it means in children and what we can do to prevent it. So just like you and me, there are skeptics about the validity of everyone who claims they have this disorder. Some aspects of it are really hard to deny, though, even for staunch opponents. I was really fascinated by what I learned. I didn't know much about this dissociative identity disorder other than what I had learned in graduate school, I have never come across a criminal with it. But for example, for these patients, multiple identities not only perform differently on personality tests, but also on IQ tests. And this was discovered and has been consistent since the 1950s. It's also been shown that the identities may also differ in age, gender, preferences, and even handwriting. So with such great differences between the identities and the fact that some identities may not be aware of the other's behaviors, it makes these legal questions really difficult to resolve. And I'm left thinking, if you hate a certain food, like I have a child who gags when presented with cheese, and then you have this other personality who will eat it, that really makes you think, gosh, I mean, there's no way I could fake that. But I need to say this up front and carefully. We need to walk this line carefully. The role of mental illness and violent crime is elusive, and there are harmful stereotypes that mentally ill people are frequently violent criminals, and it's just not true. The vast majority of mentally ill people never commit a crime. But that said, we are doing a disservice to everyone if we refuse to speak of or study the ways in which mental illness can lead to criminal behavior. 
The reality is that studies do find greater psychopathology among violent offenders, especially those convicted of homicide. And there are higher rates of violence perpetration and victimization among those with mental illness, so they might be more likely to perpetrate and they're definitely more likely to be victimized. So how does this happen? We've seen how emotional dysregulation is one way in which mental illness contributes to criminal behavior. And as you so rightly pointed out before, that can come from a very organic source. It doesn't need to start as a mental disorder. It can start from literal brain trauma. And then there are the other ways that I, you know, I often discuss impulse control and psychopathic disregard for human life. That's another way you can become a criminal. The, you know, your personality leads you there, your mental illness. I mean, things like antisocial personality disorder. Psychopathy is no longer in the DSM by itself. It's housed under antisocial personality disorder. But all that is, is criminal behavior, violent behavior, rule-breaking behavior. And that's now considered a disorder. There's no one-size-fits-all solution when it comes to hair care, and that's because your hair and your hair goals are completely unique. I've had long hair my entire life, but I've noticed in the past couple of years that my hair seems to be not as thick as it used to be, and it also seems a lot drier. But thanks to my personalized pros routine, I can honestly say I've never liked my hair more than I do now. Pros makes custom hair care that's effective because it's personal. Using natural ingredients with proven results, Pros customizes every product in your routine from shampoo to supplements. First, Pros starts by asking about your hair goals. For example, my goals were to reduce the shedding and improve the texture of my hair. Their in-depth consultation also asks about you as a person. Pros asked me things that were really unexpected, things that obviously affected my hair, but I didn't think about it, such as my zip code, my eating habits, and how much pollution my hair may have experienced. Next, Pros analyzed all of my answers and handpicked clean ingredients to help me reach my hair goals. I use supplements, a mask, shampoo, and conditioner, and I can honestly say after just a couple of days of using them, I could see a difference. I've actually had compliments on my hair that I wasn't getting before, and obviously I'm not growing hair overnight, but I'm definitely not shedding hair anymore either. As a carbon-neutral certified B Corp, Pros is an industry leader in clean and responsible beauty. All of their ingredients are sustainably sourced, ethically gathered, and cruelty-free. They're also the first custom beauty brand to go carbon neutral. And if you're not 100% positive Pros is the best hair care you've had, they'll take back the products, no questions asked. Pros is the key to achieving all of your hair goals this year. Take your free in-depth hair consultation and get 15% off your first order today. Go to pros.com slash how not. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash how not for your free in-depth hair consultation and 15% off. The idea of dissociative identity disorder leading to crime requires that one of the personalities has a propensity for crime, wants to commit crime. And that's fascinating and scary to consider. And although there are many stereotyped portrayals of individuals with this disorder in TV, I mean, gosh, there was one called like Eve or I don't remember the many faces of Eve. The link between it and crime is rarely researched and it's likely very rare in real life. But that said, it cannot be ignored like it was for Daryl. And currently there are recommendations for routine screening of offenders for dissociative disorders and adequate consideration of dissociation and these 
disorders in developmental and implementation of violence treatments. That's a great. But the obvious problem in Daryl's case is that no one was freaking watching. Nobody cared. Jessica, I want to discuss the signs of dissociative identity disorder in children. And as you would expect, accurately diagnosing it in children is challenging. We see a lot of it, evidently. I don't personally, but clinicians do in the presentation of this disorder, but they're just misdiagnosed, which happens all the time. These early presentations, mm -hmm. yeah, like even schizophrenia, which they used to think couldn't appear in childhood. They now know prodromal schizophrenia. It's there. They have the signs. They're hard to pick up on. You have to look for it. But usually kids get diagnosed with depression and ADHD. And that leads to incorrect wow. treatment. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it. And medication and, and medications that precisely. may be exacerbating things. It, that's precisely true. And we have found that there are um, mental illnesses for which the the treatment of ADHD, um, with treatment with those medications actually can make them psychotic. I was digging into this and I found an article by this guy named Jeffrey Haugard, who is a professor of human development at Cornell. And he outlined some of the symptoms in children with DID. And the first one he said was that common signs are frequent trance-like states, spacing out or daydreaming. I think on that symptom on its own is something you see in like in hindsight. Okay, you know, this mm -hmm. person was frequently, you know, spacing out, head in the clouds. Um, but there are other symptoms that I think coupled with it might get someone's attention. One of them is they become angry or upset for unknown reasons. Again, that that one is not, you know, uncommon with children. But if you think about the the source, it's sad because I think it means that their altar is acting out, but then the primary personality gets in trouble for it. So that would be incredibly confusing for, you know, a six-year-old or whatever. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Now this one I think is the is the real hallmark. Um the child will show dramatic changes in preferences such as food, games, or clothes, as well as changes in language, accent, voice, and handwriting. So all of a sudden, they're like speaking in an English accent and wearing wildly different clothes and preferring different foods. I mean, I don't know. Kids have vivid imaginations. I don't know if that would on its own, but maybe the combination of those traits um, you know, gosh. And don't you think it seems like their their senses are heightened? Like they have a overly like stimulated mm -hmm. central nervous system. Like certain smells seem to just like drive little kids over the edge, or certain sounds, and so they're like hyper hyper aware, and therefore also hyper kind of like um, internalizing mm -hmm. a certain facts. Like I've. I've heard kids say the weirdest things. Like I remember reading an article one time about a, a little girl who said that was telling her mother that she'd been married for 30 years to a man who worked on the docks and like she had three children and she was like four-year-old just taking a bath, like her mom's wow. giving her a bath. But, but all of these like that would indicate like this child is imagination and or whatever they're internalizing yeah. is is on another level beyond like what an adult could even probably conceive of you know so that's I, such a I good point like wonder about that because like since their brains aren't fully formed but they also might have like 
enhanced senses and heightened like internalization of certain things like is that even like an accurate I mean, you're absolutely right. Like their senses are far more sensitive than ours are. I mean, there's a reason Brussels sprouts taste so horrible to children. It's because they haven't yet habituated their um, taste buds. It's and they are so literal. You know, they have no context in which to interpret what they see, hear, smell, taste, touch. And they don't know what's coming next. You know, we've had a lot of years on this planet. and, And you're right. They their brain goes places that ours don't. The area of your brain responsible for memory can can fire sometimes without being triggered, and that gives you the sense of deja vu. But I mean, shoot, if you you can easily interpret that as that is that a repressed memory? Is that a memory from a past life? I mean, the brain's a weird thing, and and every time mm-hmm. we talk about it, it's the brain studying itself and talking about itself. I mean, that's the weirdest part of neuroscience is it's the brain trying to understand itself, which it can creep me out too much. So I don't like to think about that. Um, so you're right. So you have these kids with vivid imaginations who sometimes space out and can go back and forth between, you know, the personalities. Some kids will put on a, 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 a Elsa dress and not take it off for a week and sing Frozen. And then the next day or next week, not think anything of it. This one, though, I think nobody would ignore them. They have recurrent periods of amnesia, literally missing large blocks of time such as having no memory of the previous day. I mean, that's a big deal. They can actually end up denying behaviors, not bad behaviors, just regular behaviors that other people witnessed. And the child doesn't remember it at all. That one, that one's a big deal. That one's a big deal. Terrifying. As a parent, I can't imagine that you're interacting with your child and they just have whole days time periods missing yeah. that they can't account for. And they're not hungover. They didn't go on a bender the night no. before. I mean, <laughs> it happens and to adults, but for very different reasons. So I dug deeper because I'm like, okay, this isn't enough. I need what, there are people, brilliant scientists who just study this. And here are some other things that I found that I thought, okay, if you have all of this together, you know your kid is different. Imaginary friends, well into school age, well longer than you're supposed to have them. Unprovoked rages, violent behavior that come out of nowhere. Now, the unprovoked rages didn't get my attention, but the imaginary friend did. So I dug deeper and I I saw it a lot in the literature. And this woman, Lisa McLuhan, a psychologist in British Columbia, she breaks it down, the difference between the imaginary play of a typically developing child versus one who mm-hmm. has dissociative identity disorder. The one with DID, those children are much more likely to develop these imaginary friends at age two or three, very young. And they have many more of them. And these friends seem so real to the, the child that they, they really have no separation between what's real and what's imaginary. It's a lot of reality confusion. And interestingly, hmm. the imaginary friend does not always act in the best interest of the child. So the child oh. might truly be unable to remember misbehaviors and blaming it on the imaginary friend. And that is a that is a red flag. If they're saying, it's not me, it's Bubba, in Daryl's case. In typically developing kids, it doesn't look like that. They They know the difference between real and pretend. They know their imaginary friend is imaginary. And they're also very likely to discontinue this kind of play before the age of 10. Um, And is that imaginary friend 
construct a form of escapism or a form of creativity? Well, I think it depends on how it's getting there. You know, if this is someone who, if this child has suffered significant trauma, this could be, you know, the signs of the coping, dissociating, and this could be an Mm -hmm. artifact of that. Um, You know, I don't know if it's, if it's clear, if it's understood, because again, the person is, is young. And it's, you know, if, if he or she is struggling to separate reality from imagination, I can't imagine they can articulate it well. Um, Hmm. Here's another thing. They, they tend to regress to younger states. So they, they begin to act younger than they were acting last week. And they might start referring to themselves as we, as, as if they are more than one person, that'll get your attention. Also terrifying. I hope it's enough to get somebody to bring their child in for evaluation. Another one is they, um, they cycle through gaining and losing the same set of skills. So they may have acquired a new skill, but then they'll lose it and then acquire it and lose it again, which is unusual. Children normally, they're pretty linear in their skills building. Again, they're going to show confusion over what's real and what isn't. They're unaware of their emotional state. And they're also unaware of which situations are safe and which are not. And I think that can be true even of just regular kids who've been abused. Again, they're unable to recall important but non-traumatic events, just like what happened yesterday. And they report having people inside them who boss them around. I can't imagine how confusing that must be. So confusing. The person experiencing it, but then also the people who love them. Mm -hmm. And then how even more isolating to be like in a situation Daryl was in where no one was even paying attention and he's doing these dramatically dangerous things and no one's noticing. It's so disturbing. Um, They can also start hearing voices and have other signs of like PTSD and they may be unable to feel pain. Now try that one on. A child who's unable to feel pain, that's, I mean, that must be them dissociating. There are places you can go. There are diagnostic measures that will give this information. They will indicate whether your child is struggling with a dissociative disorder. And these include children's dissociative experience scale and post-traumatic symptom inventory. There's also the adolescent dissociative experiences scale, adolescent multidimensional Mm -hmm. inventory of dissociation, and child dissociative checklist. So we can put these up. You, if you Google it, it's easy to find. Um, it's important that the children are recognized as having this tendency to dissociate so that they are not treated for other disorders, which can the treatment can worsen and prevent healing. So what do you do? You figure out you've been flagged, your child's been flagged for possibly having this. Now what? Well, I was so pleased to read that the good news is that children are super responsive to the treatment and the treatment is it's pretty simple. It's relatively simple. Individuals with dissociative identity disorder are treated mostly with psychotherapy, and the kids respond even better than the adults. So if you catch it early, outcome is great. They also use nonverbal forms of psychotherapy, such as hypnosis, art, and play therapy, because sometimes it's just the patients have just too difficult of time expressing the trauma it's just too hard to verbally mm-hmm. express it. And, you know, because they're easier to treat, they have higher recovery rates. If you suspect this, don't shy away from it. Get the evaluation and, and get the child into treatment. And who does the evaluation? Is it a 
psychotherapist or, uh, you know, I would go to my pediatrician first. If your pediatrician does not understand or know what I to see. do, and, and that happens a lot. Pediatricians have to deal with mm-hmm. so many childhood problems that they, there are some of these mm-hmm. more obscure ones that are just not on their radar. So then you go to a child psychologist and get a referral to child psychologist. Exactly. And if that child psychologist doesn't specialize or know how to treat, they they should and, and most certainly I think would find the person who can. There are people who are trained in giving those measures that I talked about. So mm-hmm. that's the first step. And then the next step is finding a therapist who is trained in the type of psychotherapy that the child will need. But there's better news. There, there are these um, institutes, these places that are dedicated to this. Um, both the International Society for the Study of Trauma and Dissociation and the Sidron Institute have guidelines for caregivers of dissociative children and for professionals who work with them. And they give great advice. Like for parents, there's advice as to how to avoid triggering or upsetting children who have been the victims of abuse. And as well as how to handle the alters. Like there are things you can do that actually exacerbate the situation. And the Mm. Sidron guidelines discuss um, the acting out destructive behaviors that you can see and the amnesia between the alters. So it kind of gives you an idea of, you know, what to do, how to allow the child to express their emotions safely and, you know, not, not make the situation worse as a caregiver. So complex and so layered. So layered, so layered. So it discusses who is qualified to treat these, the dissociation in children, the different ways that it can present in children, how to assess trauma, all these um, really good resources for people who treat you know, the role of the therapist in treatment, the goals of the treatment, uh, adjunctive therapies. So these are great resources for people, even clinicians, even if you're a pediatrician or a child psychologist right now listening, these it's it's good to have this in your repertoire in, in you know, in your skill set. Cause you might come across a child who you're gonna instinctively say, Oh gosh, this looks like, oh, they're just having a hard time focusing. Let's call this ADHD, but perhaps it's not. So anyway, these are great resources. You know, there's a ton of books, Dissociative Child by Joanna Silberg, The Dissociative Children. There's tons of books on this. This is not as unusual as it is for you and I to be looking at this and hearing about it. There are are adults in the room. There are people behind the wheel. Um, And it's a a family's job to understand how to react to the child as the child is going through the therapy. It's not just therapy for the child. It's therapy for the entire family for the family. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because here, look, Daryl became a killer. The vast majority are not going to become killers, but it's certainly mm-hmm. going to be a rough road if this isn't treated. Mm-hmm. And I wonder how much collective trauma over the last three years children have experienced as a result of COVID and everything else and all of the people who were lost and children mm-hmm. potentially parentless. It just feels like one of the first times maybe the mental health conversation is coming to the forefront and especially with children since they were so dramatically affected. Well, and there's been talk of an increase in sexual abuse because everyone was home so much and that's right. And not only an increase in it, but lack of reporters, you know, teachers are, that's a big source of reporting of abuse. Mm -hmm. And if the children are at home, there's more opportunity for abuse. There's nobody to report it. Plus the triggers that can drive a, a, 
a parent to physically abuse a child, like frustration and fear and just having enough, well, those were all amplified during COVID. Absolutely. I mean, it'll be interesting to see what happens, um, you know, 10, 15 years down the line. And, and hopefully, you know, the dialogue is open. People are much more willing to talk about uh, mental illness and trajectories in children. And to destigmatize it is so important. And that's why I'm always saying, hey, you catch it early. You guys can set it and forget it eventually. Mm-hmm. But ignoring it, that becomes a problem. So in Daryl's case, I mean, he, he was, Daryl did not have the right start in life. And like you said, he had multiple risk factors for violence. But this was one of those cases where I'm like, huh, I actually believe him. Because, mm-hmm. you know, I've interviewed many, 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 many spree killers, serial killers, one-off killers, and criminals are not known for their honesty. But there are some times where I'm like, you know, it doesn't mean they're lying all the time. You know, and, and if there's no real motivation, sometimes it's just to keep the attention of the interviewer longer. You can lie for that reason. There was something also very interesting about Daryl Madison, and I I couldn't find the answer. I dug deep. I, I almost hesitate to put it in here because then you guys are going to all look it up and try to find it. He had an odd eye. It looked like a damaged eye. It was an eye that did not track. It didn't have the same tracking movement as the other eye, but it had a gray sheen over it that like a veil like a veil looked like an injury or glaucoma mm-hmm. but it it would be odd i don't know can one have glaucoma in just one eye or i don't know it looked like he had had a major injury in his eye and um i thought that that should have landed somewhere in all the research of this criminal but i could find it nowhere so same, same. i wondered that very thing in the documentary I wondered if they were going to talk about that as an injury from one of the fires that he witnessed from being too close. If any sleuth listeners find out, would you send a message to How Not to Raise a Serial Killer or to um, my Instagram, Dr. Michelle Ward, because I'm really, it's keeping me up at night. I want to know what happened. You know, because if if that's an injury to his eye, was it an injury to his head, like you said? Mm -hmm. Let's see, anything else that comes to mind? The only other thing I was thinking that I found kind of fascinating is just um, his trajectory to a certain point, looked similar to what could have been a serial killer's trajectory. But yet the kind of MO following that first killing was very different. So it looked like one pattern up to that certain point, and then it was completely different afterwards because of his essential you know, alter yeah. that he spoke of who was responsible and then his, his lapses where he, you know, over the course of two days came back. And I know that I've read that that's frequent with serial killers too. They revisit the scenes revisit. of the crime, but, yeah. but that's so risky and the body was still in there. It's and incredibly then it risky for a th- first time too. Totally. It just made me think like, typically you read about serial killers getting, you know, they're extremely smart in the beginning and then they get sloppy towards the end and they want the notoriety and want people to notice what they're doing. But with this, it was like he he had some of the hallmarks leading up to that first crime and then it just kind of like all fell apart. Well, he, he was got like very caught. confused. He got yeah. caught pretty, pretty quickly, but you're right. Mm-hmm. He was doing that thing that murderers do. Um, serial killers, or at least those who are on the track to be the, a serial killers, they go back to look at their, I mean, to look at their trophy, to look at their 
I mean, I guess you can't, you know, a hunter might put it on the wall. But, you know, in his case, he could have been going back to steal more stuff for his mm-hmm. drugs. He could have been, I didn't get the sense that he enjoyed the kill because he doesn't even remember it. Maybe his no, alter does. just was sloppy. Mm-hmm. It was just kind of like, like not really with the stealth kind of operation mm-hmm. that will t- will you'll typically read about in the early stages of they might be confused by their behavior but they're very careful. Yeah. And he just he just seemed to kind of be so confused and kind of fall apart which then leads to his arrest which yeah. it definitely protected him but could it have protected others too? What and could he have done? It makes me wonder if he had committed other murders that he doesn't remember. You know, he he says this is his first, but I, you know, I don't know if he truly does suffer from DID. We'll never know. He'll never know. He'll never know. He'll never know. Well, thank you so much, Jessica. This was an unusual episode. I've never, like I said, had a a killer with this type of background. So thank you for um, diving deep with me. I appreciate it. This has been How Not to Raise a Serial Killer, and we will see you soon. How Not to Raise a Serial Killer is a Cloud 10 Media production, executive produced by me, Dr. Michelle Ward, and Sim Sarna. Our editor is Emily Crane. Our music was created by Josh Cook, with artwork provided by Brian Stefanik. Follow us on Instagram at How Not to Raise a Serial Killer, and on TikTok and Twitter at Hentrask. That's at HN. T-R-A-S-K. If you like our show, do me a favor and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. After all, if more people know about the show, maybe fewer kids will turn into serial killers. Who knows? Thanks so much for listening. See you next week. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.